The name of our podcast is Episode 2. This time we talked to Max Frieder, the co-founder of Artolution. Artolution is a global nonprofit who has partners like the Red Cross, UNICEF, UNHCR, and UNESCO. They create art projects in communities around the globe that are experiencing crisis. So that's communities in Colombia, that's Syrian refugee communities, those are indigenous communities in Australia that are facing economic and racial oppression. They create art projects in these communities both to uplift these communities economically but also to provide an outlet for emotional healing of the traumas that these people in these communities have experienced. To give them a sense of focus, a sense of discipline, and a sense of purpose to help bring them out of the painful place that they're in and the painful past that that they've experienced. There's a lot to learn from Max about the art of leaving a positive impact on the world. I learned a lot from him and I'm really inspired by this conversation. And I hope you will be too. Enjoy. Oh yeah, you're going to some kind of business school, aren't you? Am I? <laughs> what's what's the what's the what's the graduate school you're going to? The business graduate school. Ah <laughs> uh, yeah, for business. That's what it's called. The business graduate school. It's really about the business <laughs> of the business. Yeah. You'll learn about that later. You got a lot of, yeah, almost too much business to even wrap your mind around. <laughs> Have you ever wrapped your mind around that much business before? <laughs> I'll take that as a no. On a scale of one to ten, how much business? Oh my god! Have you done? Man, you should be Jacob Rappelier. You're like right up the alley, that guy. <laughs> oh yeah, he's he's uh, one of my one of my closest friends. Yeah, good. I, I can see why. <laughs> we we all met at the same we all met at the same time. Love it. Yeah. Quality. Yeah. Anyway. So Max, what what have you been doing? Where where are you right now? Are you in New York or are you back in Colorado? Nope, I'm in New York, New York City, in the epicenter of, all, of a lot of this crazy, crazy world that we're in right now. So yeah, I'm here. Been here the last three months. Me and my girlfriend haven't really seen anybody else, um, and it has been, yeah, it's like being in a boat. That's what it feels like, you know, at sea. We're all we're all in our boats mm. um, at the sea together. Noah's Ark, and the animals are our imagination. It's kind of a it's kind of a funny comparison actually, because we all think of this as like, wow, I've never been in one place without doing anything or seeing anyone new for such a long time, for like you know three or four months. But that's you know that's what everyone who wanted to do international travel did back in the day. Well, well, and especially I think in a lot of the world, right, all over the world, people are in isolation as a norm, right, like the resting base globally Mm. especially in remote communities especially in um you know places that are way out in nature um a lot of people are alone a lot of the time um or or even more so they live in this kind of small bubble and they never leave because they don't have the resources to leave so it's almost like experiencing what that would be like or what that is like i think for a lot of folks um and being able to empathize yeah you know that that kind of reminds me 
you've had a lot more experience in those communities, maybe 100% more experience in those kind of communities than I have. But I remember I went to this coffee farm outside of this small town in Colombia, and I was I was chatting with a with a dude for a while, and he's like a really worldly dude. He's like really interested in in all kinds of uh, information. He studies history and stuff like that. But I, I mentioned something offhand about the blues to him. And he's like, what's that? Yeah. And I was like, like the blues, like the music. And he's like, what is, I don't know what that, what is, where is that from? And uh, he also like didn't know who Bob Dylan is or like stuff like that, that you kind of think of as being uh, very universal knowledge. And then, you know, you go to places where that's either not part of the culture or they just don't have access to that. Um, like they didn't have internet up there on the mountain and you're like, Oh yeah. Information doesn't just travel through the air. It travels through like technology that we build or mouths person to person. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's also kind of these spheres of knowledge, right? So for example, one of the places that we work extensively is in the Rohingya refugee camps. And, you know, for those folks, there's, you know, never had access to education or access to basic, um, you know, healthcare infrastructure, you know, the ability to have a birth certificate or a passport. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of what we would consider, um, you know, knowledge that is commonplace in the West. And yet, and yet, you know, they may not know that, but then there's other things that they may know extensively about, you know, like certain um, dialects of of uh, Rohingya that's translated into Islam, and they may have very specific knowledge about madrasas or imams or the local tribal leaders of majis or specific, you know, they that I don't think that necessarily like knowledge is knowledge is equal all over the world. Right. And I think, you know, mm. that is something where, you know, if you're in a remote part of Colombia and they know a lot about the history of Las Farc. Right. And yet they don't know who Bob Dylan is. It's just a different version of expertise, you know, and I think sometimes we create these hierarchies right. of what expertise looks like. But the reality is, is across the world there people are experts in their lives. Right. They're experts on who they are and their community and their culture. And I think especially when traveling, finding ways of, of both embracing that, but also going to any person, no matter their age, no matter where they are, as a student, right, to learn from them um, is something that I've found to be really important. I think it's crucial, especially in this era of global global communication, um, is figuring out, you know, learning how to learn um, in, in unexpected environments. Do you find that, I can, I can say really quick what I find, and then I'm curious for both of your opinions, of, let's... I don't know what to title and title these people, but if you're anywhere, if you're anywhere and you're meeting people that are at least somewhat, I'm just going to use the word worldly, even though that's kind of a tough blanket term to put over people. Um, how often do you feel like they're very, um, really okay with their ignorance about the world, ignorance about specific cultures? Mm -hmm. I probably specific to the one that you're in at that given time. So if you're in, for example, a Rohingya camp, Max, and there's people that are, there's, there's international people that are working there in some regard. Um, and this could be at any refugee camp. This could be actually anywhere. I'm just giving that as an example. Um, do you feel like most of the people are very comfortable 
with their ignorance about where about the people's knowledge of where they are. That's basically what you're talking about, right? There's knowledge is equal no matter who you are. International knowledge is equal. And so being understanding of, okay, well, I'm here and I understand and I accept that I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about when it comes to this specific people, the, these people's cultures, this um, subcultures within them, um, their communication together. Do you find that a lot of the people that either you're working with um, who are not locals are like very like cognizant of how ignorant they are about things and they're okay with that and they're willing to learn or are there people that just like do you find a lot of people are just make assumptions about well i be, i'm so worldly so i can i base i know better basically and they have that kind of vibe about them does that question well, make sense yeah i, I actually that's a, it's a strangely interesting question because it really is contextual so in other words if you go to a place and you're with a whole bunch of backpackers right who are in a foreign country People are going there to like see the place, right? They're going to the travel through the place, right? That's very different than humanitarian aid workers who are going there as their job. Um, I, I, I view them to be very different categories. And and why, like if you go there because you are a public health specialist trying to stop the, the spread of infectious diseases, right? And you may not know a ton about the Rohingya community, but you know a lot about infectious diseases, right? Then it becomes a knowledge exchange. Right. You go there to listen and to share. Right. And, and I think that is it, most people who are in those spheres, I think, have to go there knowing they want to learn. That doesn't mean that always happens. I definitely don't think that always happens. But that's the ideal. I think it's very different when you're traveling and you're trying to kind of absorb the culture. But you have to think like what what if, if this is sharing, there has to be equity. There has to be something where you go and you share whatever you can and learn whatever you can. Um, and I and I I would like to think that across the world that can grow, that is growing over time. But I think that that takes kind of a, a deconstructing of hierarchies of that some knowledge is more valuable than others. And and I think finding mm. how to be able to um, deconstruct that is really important. Um, and I think one of the most important ways is using systems to deconstruct these kinds of preconceived notions. Right. So in other words, if you take an institution which, for better or for worse, is a giant bureaucracy like UNICEF, okay, who's an institution we work with, right, it, it's much easier to complain about bureaucracies than to try to actually work through bureaucracies and be able to have them shift the way that they allocate funding, the way that they're able to, to, to redistribute knowledge and wealth. And I think that's quintessential when we start considering how to equal the playing field, which is to get these really big players and instead of immediately demonizing like the US State Department or the European Union or you know any of the, the Red Cross, instead of saying, well, these giant institutions have so many systemic problems, there's nothing you can do. I would argue that it's using those systems to be able to change the status quo. And I think that comes from what you're talking about, Noah, which is individuals being willing to listen. And, and actually not just willing, prioritizing listening. Like listening is the most important thing within a lot of these spheres. So do you, do you mean uh, listening to those bureaucracies or like what's the, what's the strategy that you have found to be effective to get those bureaucracies to kind of shift where they're allocating funds and shift their their perceptions and yeah 
I would so so initially when I was saying listening, I was actually just talking about the people that are there, like listening to the people mm. that are there, um, and that those organizations need to have individuals within the cogs of the machine, if you will, mm. that are willing to listen. Or or I would prefer to think of them as trees in a forest rather than cogs in a machine. Why? Because each each person is their own set of systems, their own ecosystem, mm. and you know you don't work with an institution, you work with an individual within an institution. And that's a really crucial difference, I would argue, because then people can make decisions. Now, you were asking, how do you work with these big institutions? So this is a good lead in. So with with our organization, with Artolution, um, which is an international community-based public arts organization with the work that we do, we partner with many organizations around the world to figure out how can we create a container, a space where we can teach local artists and educators who are refugees, people who've been through trauma, um, people who want to be able to tell their own story and just need to be catalyzed to do such. They already have the stories. They already have the resilience. It's just about being able to find ways of catalyzing it. And the answer is the most innovative, radical, disruptive, changing kind of thing you can do is to be able to work within, in my opinion, within the system, play by the rules and then change the rules, right? So so in other words, being able to propose a completely different kinds of project that that for, for our case is able to get a big institution to let's say fund our you know Rohingya refugee artists to be able to tell their stories where they are then able to be paid every month to be able to put food on their table, it's taking the disparity of the world and trying to create a balancing system. And I, you know, I think that's so, important. So the artists that you in these different countries get paid for the work that they're doing? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's crucial to be able to have a livelihoods component, you know, and and we value artists. And I think so many times, especially in the in the Western world, oh, can't you just volunteer this? Oh, you know, you're an artist, can't you just make a piece of art, you know? And and for us, we really mm. value artists and educators as as being um, agents of social change. And we believe that you have to put them into a sphere where people can believe in that people can talk to donors can talk to funders and say we should support this because it's a new approach to being able to change systems of um of inequity and and that's something that i think is really important i think about the work we used to do uh, before the current administration with the u.s state department and we were doing programs that were bringing together israeli and palestinian artists um, being able to have them paid to work with Israeli and Palestinian kids, um, being able to do reconciliation programs. And that's not an easy thing to do, but it reallocates, you know, the U.S. tax dollars to being able to create um, coexistence, you know. And, and I think those are the things. And, and you have to be able to convince people and persuade people to be able to make these things happen. Um, I think that's really important as well, is, is having the passion behind it. Because as I said, if those individual trees within the forest if you get one of those trees who's really passionate, it's much more powerful because they're already in the forest than to try to come in and try to convince the whole forest. You know, you need one person who's an advocate from within. Right. So how did you, when you were starting out, how did you find, who was like the first big gatekeeper um, <laughs> that you that you found and you connected with? Ty Flewelling. That is his name. And this guy who total shout out he is an amazing amazing guy i met when i was teaching a surfing lesson in uh off the beach in uh, in the mediterranean and um really wild we um wait you were t you were taking a surfing lesson or giving one 
I was like somewhere in between. I was the I was assisting a friend of mine who was the teacher because I'm not a good surfer at all. Um, so I so <laughs> so I, I I went out much more into the snowboarding world. Um, but I and and basically I was teaching these kids. I was helping to 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 teach these kids. And I come in and their dad was there and said, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "I'm, I'm actually working with Israeli and Palestinian youth, um, doing programs, um, painting murals, being able to have them meet and talk to each other." And he and the first thing he said, first words out of his mouth were. What you're doing has deep public health implications. Do you know that? And I said, that's so interesting to hear you say that. Um, I've considered it, but nobody's ever supported it. He ended up being the medical attache of the U.S. State Department in the U.S. Embassy. And um, interestingly enough, he, he basically then we started working together, talking together, and it took a, about over a year before he was able to convince his colleagues to actually give, give, give me a, a contract. Um, and, and that ended up growing substantially into a series from one to three to five different uh, uh, projects with the U.S. State Department, with the U.S. Embassy and the U.S. Consulate. Um, and those were some of the first opportunities to really come out, although the very first one was working in New Zealand with Modi communities. Do you sorry, feel his, his his sorry? Can you hear me? His name is Ty Ty, right? Is his first name? Yeah. How often do you find he? I mean, Dan referred to him in the first place as as a gatekeeper. Essentially, some type of a connection like this, who's a player from the inside, I'll say, um, that does have pull in some type of a large institution. It could be public, private could be a specifically a financial this sounds that was more of a political institution that does have financial pull how often do you find people like that in a, a big governing body or big institution that get it you know that get what you're trying to do or see see it in another way that's also very positive and want to actually help versus people that have power in these institutions that don't get it don't care won't listen you reach out to them anyway um, I know certainly I mean, we talked about this briefly that when I was talking about when I was just in Senegal recently and I met all these different diplomats, um, a couple of which were with the U.S. State Department. And then there were lots of diplomats from other countries that were working at those their embas their according embassies in Dakar. And we talked about me and you how like a lot of these people like are so not in tune with the local people at all. It's like complete they're in their own bubble. And maybe there's a couple that aren't. Um, and you know, these people, some of these people have quite a lot of pull, some of these diplomats, mm. um, and people that are working with different. And so how often do you find people that are in these types of positions that, that get it and you barely even have to say anything. You just describe what you're doing for a little bit and they get it and they want to help. You know, I actually think that's a great question because initially I was very skeptical. Like I didn't think I'd find like any. You know, I, I was very skeptical because of how challenging it is to kind of break through some of those barriers, especially in the arts, especially art education, um, which is such an underfunded sector. Um, and and it's, it's very undersupported and undervalued, I believe, all over the world, not, it, it, across the board. And the answer is, is way more than I would have thought, actually. Um, I think diplomacy is, is one example, although I would argue that in the humanitarian sector, in the development sector, in the public health sectors, um, within the spheres of, edu uh, of education, um, you know, protection, gender-based violence, wash sanitation hygiene, I've been surprised at how many people have gotten, have believed in it. And one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, if you can imagine in the beginning, at most one out of every four 
you know, opportunities would actually come through. So I mean, 75% of the time, when, when, when we would say we'd be doing a project, um, it would fall through, right? And that means of those 25% of the time, you have to make it 100% of the time successful, right? There isn't that margin for error in the arts. Right, and that, that, that portion of people is also taken from all the people, there's also tons of other people that just said no right away or didn't respond to you. Exactly, exactly. So, so you know, of that, it's a percentage, which is a smaller percentage, which is a smaller percentage. However, it only takes one. Yeah. That's what I've noticed. It only takes one. And if you can, and, and, and honestly, the core of it is is not what their role is necessarily just in the institution, but how passionate are they? And can you develop a actually um, ethical and substantive relationship? that's based on real care. Like I'm looking you in the face and I care about you as somebody who works for UNHCR or works for the International Rescue Committee. I care about you. How can we support one another, right? Rather than what can you do for me because I need help because I'm starting a small organization. That's not the way to look at it. The, the most valuable currency is relationships. Actually caring full of um, ethical value kinds of relationships. And, and, and I would argue that when you make the first relationship, it leads to the second, which leads to the third, which leads to the fourth. Yeah, totally. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's in the same institution. But if you've worked with one institution, like I'll use UNICEF, then it's much easier for UNHCR to look at you, or one of the UN agencies, to look at you and say, well, you already are trusted by this organization. I'll take you more seriously. Right. So it's a domino effect. Right. When when you when you have one institutional support, it leads to another, which leads to another. So I think it's really a process of leveraging those relationships. But I'd like to think, although there is a minority, um, I, I'd like to think they're not anomalies. I'd like to think that people in institutions are good and want to do good things. Totally. You know, just fighting a wave and it can be very challenging. And instead of fighting that mm. wave, how do you ride that wave and change the direction of it? Well, that also kind of made me realize actually something during your answer and in that I I also met, I kind of would like to phrase the question a little bit of a different way too because I originally started with certain diplomats and certain um, people within these institutions that aren't necessarily so connected, truly connected to the local people of the place that they're meant to be representing. Um, or, yeah. But then I turned it around and said how, you know, their connection to you, which is relevant, right? You and Artolution. Um, and like, how, if they understand Artolution. But do you find that a lot of these people, all that, that the, the people that, the small percentage that you're talking about that get you and get what Artolution is doing and wants to do, that these are the same people that also are actually in relatively good touch uh, with the local populations that they're meant to be representing? You know, I think I'd like to say yes. Um, but let's be honest here about privilege, right? Which is which is that, you know, the three of us here on this call have access to electricity, have access to be able to have conversations. Or, or that they try, or that they try to be in touch. How about that? Sure, sure, right. Because some don't. I want to finish the first answer before I get to the second. The yeah. first answer, Noah, is that I would argue that whether or not they genuinely take the time to get to know the people in that community, um, I'd like to say yes, I genuinely don't know. What I do know is if you're coming in as a foreigner, right, and you are talking to other foreigners, right, in the end, you're already in this very yeah. um, unequal system. 
right? And you have to know that you're a player in an, in an unequal system, right? And I don't think we're under any guise that we're not, you know? And, and, and the question is, how can, how can you go in? And I think about, for example, the work we do in Uganda. Okay, and, and we've done extensive work um, on the border of South Sudan in the largest refugee settlement in Africa called the Bidi Bidi Refugee Settlement. And I had a whole ton of meetings with every partner I possibly could organize to have meetings with. And a lot of the times, not all the times, but a lot of the time, it's another foreigner coming from a different country. Okay, um, and, and, and every time I know when I would walk in, I would be coming in with my team, who are Ugandan and South Sudanese, um, our country manager, our field coordinator, and then some of our, our, our teaching artists, right? And I would come into these meetings with our teams, right? And, 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 the, and the saddest yet most reality thing, uh, reality part of this, is they may have never gotten that chance to meet with the country director of one of these institutions, right? My team, right? Um, and our teams, right? And so because of that, it's something where I know that because we're co I'm coming from this place of, in many ways, influence, the whole point is being like, okay, if you're only gonna come and meet with us because you're meeting with the co-founder and co-executive director of this organization, okay, let's open that door. But then once the door is opened, th then, then I need to be able to step back, leave, and, and our team, Swizen and Alban Ramukwenze, right, our, our team in Uganda needs to then be the leadership there, whether it's to a foreigner, whether it's to people within their own community. But the answer is, is it's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate situation, but the reality is, is the world is not equal and many of these systems are unequal. And so, so we have to use the fact that, okay, there might be a, a title affiliated with my name when I come into a, a, a location, but that doesn't mean that you have to stay as being within that title, right? The, the, the key is to use it as kind of a, a, a way to get your foot in the door. And once the foot is in the door, have the local leadership, the local initiative, be the ones who continue this work. I, I think that's quintessential. I think that's mm. so important. Um, otherwise, it just continues to pe perpetuate the systems. You know, you have to change the power balance. I mean, for me, no, Noah knows this very well. I, I uh, just finished my doctorate um, at Teachers College at Columbia. And, you know, part of the reason that I, I went through five years of research, which is really focusing on the Rohingya crisis and glad to talk about that a little more, is just that having this, you know, title in front of your name, it's actually just as much about trying to open the door for our communities that we've been working with for over a decade, right? For them to be able to get in the door as it is for me. And, and I really hope that when these kinds of institutions then are like, oh, well, we have to take this seriously because he got his doctorate here. Well, it's actually not really about that. It's about, it's about the doctorate being, being a way to get your foot in the door. So then that one, you know, female Rohingya artist, right, named, you know, uh, Ayla is able to take on a leadership position within her own community and be paid to do this work. You know, it, it's about mm. trying to find those those ways of building bridges. Yeah, Max, have you ever heard of um, El Sistema with uh, and Gustavo Dudamel? El Sistema. Um, yeah. Tell me about it. So I it's I I really thought of this when you were talking about how when you met Ty, he said that. You know, do you realize how much an impact this has on public health? Because um, initially, when I was when I was researching art illusion and, and looking into it, honestly, my, my first reaction was like, okay, this is this is art, but how is this like impacting the like 
like fundamental economics like how is this impacting people's lives if it's just an art project that was like going i was asking myself that that question and then i i thought about um lc stemma is slash was i don't know if it's still running in venezuela that um it took children from poor communities in venezuela and then put them into music programs and taught them a classical instrument violin viola or some some classical orchestra instrument um four hours a day six days a week and this ended up producing amazing musicians including gustavo dudamel is probably the most famous who at 28 years old became the uh the lead conductor and music director of the los angeles philharmonic uh coming out of el sistema in venezuela and but beyond just people finding professions in different parts of the world they found that the children who were studying under el sistema were significantly uh significantly less likely to be a victim of gun violence uh, significantly less likely to join a gang, uh, significantly more likely to find employments um, it, as they as they grew older, because it it's something that gives them like a focus and a sense of purpose and a discipline, and to like give meaning to their life, and they're able to pour all that energy into 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 that area, and that has an outsized benefit on on all the other areas of their life as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that actually the, the there's so much research that, that that's actually gone into how many different ways expression, creativity, the arts are are actually a, a conduit for so many other behavioral trends and for so many different shifts in perspectives, shifts in understanding and also behavioral ideation of the future. So this idea that I can see what my future can be, that I have a future, right? And in many parts of the world, this is really important when you don't have a healthy outlet to deal with trauma, with toxic stress, with developing um, healthy coping mechanisms. I think those those kinds of ways of basically, if you have a steam pot and you don't have a way of being able to let out the steam, then, then it's gonna compress and it's gonna compress and it's gonna compress until it comes out in an unhealthy way. I think about the work that we've done in the favelas in Brazil, where the arts are a way of being able to let a lot of this, you know, if you're hearing hundreds of gunshots every day between the, the gangs and the policia, you know, you need to have a way of being able to deal with that. Um, if you don't, then you very you're much more susceptible to join the gang. You're much you know for for the for the kids that we've worked with in Lebanon, you're much more likely to join an extremist group, you know, or as well as in the Syria response that we've done, um, you know, and uh, de-radicalization. Um, there's there's a lot of statistics on how providing healthy outlets is so important. And I think you know one of the things that is crucial is if you want to change systemic problems for the future then you need to be able to work with the next generation, which is children, and, and, and you have to change educational systems. And so much of the time, the arts are the first things to get cut or we're never even there in the first place. And the, and the unfortunate part, actually, I'll, I'll reverse it, that when there is arts and creativity, when there is dance and theater, the performance of children in literacy, numeracy, in, in cognitive understanding and problem solving rises substantially. 
And, and the reason why is because you have to activate different ways of being able to work through a problem. And whether that be a mathematical problem or an ethical dilemma or how am I going to take care of my family today or how, how am I going to deal with the stress and anger that I feel of being, you know, what some might say a victim of the circumstance and transform into becoming a survivor that can then transform into being an agent of social change. And that and, and I think that transformational process is is one of the most important components of what the arts can provide, especially in places where the arts are undervalued um, or where they're very much thought of to only exist in one space. So, for example, I think, you know, there's amazing cultural traditions all over the world of the arts that um, that go, when you go into a different space, when we work in in, let's say, the Syrian refugee camps in Jordan, there's a very rich history of Syrian art. You know, whether it be in Damascus or whether it be in Homs or Hama, you know, there, there's amazing art. And so it's not going there to say, OK, we're here to teach how to make art. It's how do we how do we provide the forum for the arts to emerge organically from the pre-existing brilliance and knowledge that has existed for many times, hundreds or thousands of years. And I think that that's the key is being able to tape some of those untapped potentials and being able to release them. Um, and I think it, that's something me and, and my co-founder, Joel Bergner, um, we've been working for a long time to figure out how to make that happen. And I'll, I'll end that that one other com with one other comment. When, when, when we started doing this work, we, we would go and we'd meet these amazing artists, like these people who just their stories, you know, hearing the stories about people who, you know, have lost everything they have. You know, one story that I it always sticks in my mind is this one man and 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 he his name is Mohammed Ibrahim, who's actually now back in Syria. And he told me, he said, um, you know, what's the hardest question you've ever been asked? And I said, well, I don't know, Mohammed Ibrahim. He said the hardest question I said, how about for you? He said the hardest question I've ever been asked is why by his four year old son, why are people trying to kill us? And he said, he said, I don't know why people are trying to kill us, but we don't hate anybody. And he said, you know, I've watched my children not have food to eat and starving, not be able to give them water. And, and yet every day is better than the last. I said, I said, what makes you say that? He said, because we are still alive and arts are what make my life have meaning. And if you look mm. at that, it's that the arts are directly connected to meaning making in the world, right? Feeling that your life has value, feeling that who you are matters both within your yourself, your family, your community, and arguably within the world as a whole. And, and that's probably one of the biggest things that I think the arts can provide is that connection point to feeling like you're connected with others. And there's no stronger camaraderie than I've ever felt than with artists around the world seeing, you know, my brother jam in, in Dakar with uh, Senegalese artists, my experiences with artists around the world. I think art, art is a universal language and you'll hear that from so many people. But the reason why it is a universal language is not just because we can both hold a paintbrush and paint. It's because we both realize that we're connected to something bigger, which is the energy of creativity. Mm. You know, and I think th that's important. Yeah, and I, I guess the arts were probably, you know, when you think it back to how how long have humans been around? Two million years or something? 
maybe 200,000, I forget. But whatever, we'll say we go back 200,000. <laughs> That's a big difference. We go back 200,000 years. And the arts were probably initially, like, um, developed alongside with religion and with, uh, with a belief in, in, in God. Um, you, you know, arts, it's interesting because we have a conception of what art is, right? But the first known creation of quote-unquote art is the Caves of Lascaux which were the mm. first cave paintings um which are now in southern france uh and and you know you know this is what was interesting is to them this wasn't art this was saying that we exist you know taking taking your hand mm. covering it in 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 a pigmented dust slapping it on a wall and saying i was here i matter right now did they think that was art not necessarily that was their definition of being alive Right. And and yet, as time has progressed, you know, one of the arguably the biggest, the most important writings about this in the post-industrial era is Walter Benjamin, um, who wrote this, uh, who wrote an amazing uh, text um, called Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. And what it was really saying is what happens to painting when for thousands of years painting was used to document history? What happens with the advent of the camera? What happens when we can we can document immediately? Right? What happens to painting? And it put painting into a tailspin. And what ended up happening is you had people who were saying, well, God, what is art? You know, Marcel Duchamp, 1917, the Dadaist movement, saying, if I take a, a, a urinal and I write the name, or the moniker R. Mutt on it, well, what does that say? Right? You know, and, and put it in a gallery. Does that have value? Right. What what happens when you have, you know, early, you know, in the early 50s and you have the ab abstract expressionist, you know, folks who are making just squares of colors saying this is yeah, art, you know, or, or amazing African traditions, you know, from around the world or excuse me, from from all across Africa who have such incredible traditions of mask making. Now, was that art or was that religious? And the answer is, is art transcends. It's all of it, you know, and I think the the point of art, in my opinion, is asking what art is. Like art's quintessential purpose is to ask what it, both what it is, but what can it do? And I think that's a really important question is both what is art, but at this point we're kind of beyond what is art. Art is everything. Art can be whatever is in the, mm. the eye of the beholder, but what can art do? That's what I've been very curious about since the beginning of, of my work and and seeing what it can do to discuss issues like gender-based violence, like domestic violence, these really hard issues to talk about. It's not easy to talk about domestic violence in a community. That's a really hard thing to discuss. Yet the arts can become a safe space for being able to express these issues. And I, th I think that's an important um, component as well, that creativity can have a component to creating a safe space, which can turn into a brave space. Right, a space where you can feel confident that you can do things that maybe you couldn't do. You can tell stories in a new way. And we've had restrictions. I mean, let me tell you, man, I, 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 we, we've had work where we were working, for example, uh, across from a madrasa, um, which is a, a religious school in the Rohingya camps. And the imam said, OK, you can paint here, but you can't show any animals. You can't show any people. You can't show anything that's alive. But we still want you. But, but, but we still need to tell a story. And, and you know what? Our artists did an amazing job of figuring out ways to use allegory, to use metaphor, right? To use poetry. Mm. 
and and I think you know humans are resilient in their ability to tell stories, and and I think that's the quintessential piece of all of it, which is storytelling. That's that's the through line across from the caves of Lascaux till today. I think storytelling is what connects all cultures because it's the foundation. I think of anthropology and it's the foundation of cultural understanding. And we see that today. If I if I can, I actually want to make a little bit of a small segue from what you're talking about, which it's relevant to what you're talking about, into actually your your own personal art, because one of the kind of big motifs that you've been touching on, that we've been touching on, is well, especially in this last portion, is that art is a fantastic way to express the most difficult things, whether it's in one's inner personal life, whether it's in a community's life. Um, art in some way, right? I know that certainly some of the music that I write, I don't have as easy of a time talking about with people until the song is written. Um, the song is written, then it's like, okay, I have some of it out there in some way, even if it's a bit abstract, now I feel more comfortable talking about it. I know that a lot of musicians would say the same thing. I don't know if you guys know who Elliot Smith is, but if you look at like mm-hmm. interviews with Elliot Smith, or just him talking in general, he is not comfortable talking about things in general. And he's, in my opinion, arguably one of the most epic songwriters of all time. And it's it's incredible. It's, it's a lot of very sad energy. It's, it's a lot of depressing music, but it's beautiful. In any case, I want to ask you about your own personal art. And it could have been from could have been from your high school days, or it could be current art, um, or it could be art that you are personally making in these refugee camps. Um, do you feel like you express difficult parts of your own life in your, whether it's paintings, drawings, sculptures, I mean, you're kind of all across the whole visual arts world. Um, and this, uh, this goes to both of you, honestly, I mean, you're both artists. So, um, I'm, yeah, I'm curious, I'm, I'm curious about that in your own personal art. Well, well, I, I, I know I've given a lot of thought to that. And, and, and I have a little bit of a strange answer to this. And, 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 and I've given a lot of time and weight to considering a very specific component of what you're discussing, which is, if you see or work with or develop strong relationships with people who've been through really serious trauma, Right, being in environments with people who have lost their whole family members, been through things that I, I know from my perspective I, I could never imagine um, what that would be like, and I would never claim that I could. You get, especially if you actually develop a relationship with that person, right? You don't see them once and you hear their story and walk away, but you stay in touch with them for months and years. You you start. For for me, I've realized I need to have healthy outlets of of handling some of the relationships and situations that I have been in myself. Um, And my personal art has become a strong outlet for that, for documenting um, my reflections on some of the amazing people that I've met who also have some of the saddest stories, people who've been shot trying to flee their their region, people who've seen their whole families burned in fires. Like these are real stories that I've, I've, I've heard. You know, children who've been tortured. And and when you hear these things, it's not an easy thing, you know, to hear. And I think self-care within the humanitarian sphere is really important. And that can manifest through meditation. It can manifest through wellness practices. For me, I'm an artist, so it comes through art. And, and in the most recent years, I think that's been a very big inspiration 
for where my art's come from, which is reflecting on the people that I've met and the things that I've seen. Um, and, and I'm always keeping a sketchbook wherever I am, drawing drawing and writing and, 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 and keeping it come to life. At the same time, what about when I was five or four? Or what about drawings that I made when I was, you know, that angsty teenager? teenager? And the answer is, is I see there being a through line. I, I see there being continuity. And the continuity is that if at an early age, children are encouraged to deal with their emotions through expression, I think that it, it, it develops in many ways subconscious capacities to find healthy ways of letting out whatever you're dealing with, no matter the period of time. Yeah, I think it's 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 something where also later on in life people find art and they love it. I think the key the key piece of it is also being able to develop internal structures where art is a way of life. It's not just something you do. It's a way that you see the world. It's a way that you breathe. A way that you smell and taste. I think art is an existence. It's a way of existing. And, and personal art, I know for myself, I'm always drawing. And yet, I, I recently was having a conversation with my girlfriend and we were talking about how I actually view my relationships to be just as much an art form as my paintings or drawings or sculptures, right? And that's a really weird thing to try to conceive of. Can you paint through an email, right? The ancient, the ancient um, art of letter writing, which is what an email is. Right, letter writing has been one of the most important, you know, crucial ways of being able to communicate. And, and I think, of, and I think about it that that in the era we're in now, I have to view it that way because that's how somebody like Muhammad Noor, right, one of our artists in in Bangladesh, that's how he's able to have an opportunity for him to express himself. And he doesn't get the opportunity to be there trying to negotiate to make you know these big institutions support. So. It's weird, right? At my core, I'm an artist and an educator more than anything, but I'm also finding that that is a way of seeing the world. It's a way of being in the world. And that has implications into every strata of life. So whether it's making a small sketch while I'm talking on the phone, or whether it's having a phone conversation with the head of an international organization, I actually view it all to be one. It's deeply interconnected to me. I, hmm. I, I, I would also, I would also make make the the maybe bold statement uh, in some way of saying that this is not in any way just the fine arts, and this can be you know the art of being a mother, this can be the art of 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 being able to create a business that gives your life meaning, right? I I, I would like to think that arts can exist in every way. Yeah. I don't know if that's always true, but I'd like to think it is. You know, I'd like to yeah. think that 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 it can it can exist to anybody. And you know, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say, yeah, like creativity has its place everywhere. Um, you know, that's that's kind of one of one of the really interesting things about the last I don't know 60 years of uh, of technology, where kind of you know the the most classic example is steve jobs being the guy who uh you know he was a businessman he was a marketer and he was into technology but he was also a guy who like took acid and he and he really wanted 
his he really wanted Apple computer to, computers to be works of art and to be artistic in the way they look, the way they're presented, and the way people are able to interact with them, the ease of use. That was, you know, this was all kind of an, an artistic project for him. And I guess, like, for me, I, I do, I have a lot of different artistic outlets. I play music, um, and I, you know, I occasionally uh, paint, and I, I dance, and really, really anything artistic interests me. But I think the my main art form is my lifestyle, where... I try, like, the, my focus is mainly on trying to create more and more of exactly the kind of life that I want to be living, like, where that started with coming out of college without any particular skills, but just saying, I want to work remotely and be able to work from wherever I choose to be as long as I have an internet connection. So, it and and then the process of winding my way through life and meeting different people and meeting different skills until I found a way to make that happen that so like, and then being able to take that and uh, okay, then traveling around the world and then learning how to uh, build a social community in the three or four months that I'm in a place and having friends that I'll go back and see or being able to land somewhere and then a few months later be organizing some kind of event, like learning how to do all of that. That's kind of my main uh, tapestry. Well, I, I will say a tapestry is a great, a really important word, I think, because a tapestry to me is like a collage of many different elements. And we're in a very interesting era. I mean, right now, not, not leaving one's environment, um, I think is an interesting opportunity. Right. I mean, I think it's something that's very challenging for a lot of for, for, for I think the world we're in a universal connected state of being challenged. I would also make the, the argument that it's it's pushed and pulled at systems and shown what infrastructure is there and what is not. And also how malleable something like creativity can be. I know for, for our teams, we've uh, launched a virtual bridges platform where we're continuing programs across all of our regions around the world. We work in eight regions globally, and we've continued working there, having our artists receiving trainings digitally, and they've been doing stop motion animations. They've created different storytelling through paintings they've created, and we've even been able to have our artists making um, large scale murals on canvas from home that are being bolted up to walls with public health messaging um, in Bangladesh and in the Rohingya camp. And we found all of these different ways where no matter the situation, creativity can thrive. Creativity cannot be, it's an unquenchable uh, capacity to be able to exist. And I think people are thirsty for a reason to celebrate. I think people all over the world need a reason to feel that they have something to embrace. And whatever that might be, and I know one of my, my most powerful stories with this was I, I had an experience where I was on my first time um, in the Rohingya camps, and I, I, I had collected uh, offcuts of fabric that were all in the dumpsters, that were in the trash, 
And we do a lot of work with trash. We build interactive percussive sculptures out of recycled materials that kids can learn how to play. We do costumes, we do masks, we do all kinds of different things out of recycled materials, teaching about sustainability and, and recycling. And, and, and we took all these offcuts, which mind you very much uh, were from like a, a sweatshop, right? A place where people are the garment industry in Bangladesh. And, and we took these offcuts and we brought them into the refugee camp. We put them in one of the child-friendly spaces we were working in. And the children just start taking all of these pieces of fabric and they start throwing them up in the air and they start singing and they start dancing uh, and making up songs, right? And it became this material of joy, right? And then all of a sudden, these 12 very stern looking religious men come into the space and they see what we're doing. And, and um, it's a very, very conservative Muslim community. And I'm like, oh, like what's gonna happen? I, I, I have no idea what's about to happen right now. And guess what happened? These guys come in and they start taking this fabric and they start throwing it up and they start singing and dancing. And this whole, you know, party, this celebration bursts out of the, the, the center, out into the community. And then the women in the full burqas, they come and they start tying these pieces of fabric around their head and they start singing and dancing. And it became this experience where these people were so craving a reason to be able to have the capacity to bond with each other. To, to, to have anything good to embrace in their lives. And I think people are feeling that right now in, on a global scale. People mm. want to have something good to embrace. And the arts, I think, both in the social action and social activism perspective, as well as in the joy-filled perspective and feeling like life has meaning, there's not any more a valuable time than right now to being able mm. to use the arts to connect people. Because, you know, isolation, the, you know, the way that, how do we combat social isolation is connection. And how do we build connection? We build connection through meaning. And how do we create meaning? In conversations like this, in conversations where you're listening and you're speaking and actually being able to develop um, a feeling like we're doing something that matters. And, and I think that's what the arts at its best can do. Um, mm. is is creating a meaningful connection between you, the viewer and themselves, the participant and themselves, the artist and themselves, the artist and the viewer, the audience and the artist. You know, it's creating meaningful connections. That's the core component of of, of the arts, I would argue. Max, what are you what are you what are you doing with your time now, through this whole period? Like, what does your day to day look like? Um, I, so I'm in my global headquarters known as my apartment and, um, I literally spend every day on calls and meetings with our teams around the world. Um, I have gotten very active in being able to set up programs that our teams can be able to do during these times. So, you know, today, for example, I had a meeting with Plan International about a big project we're doing, having our artists making illustrations to teach caregivers how to be able to, to, to work with early, their children uh, to prevent the spread of COVID and to be able to bring education into their homes. Um, I, I, I had a meeting 
meeting today with a uh, an, an an expert on uh, de-radicalization who was actually an amazing man named Daryl Davis who um who actually uh over the tw last 20 years worked with over 300 KKK members and was able to have them denounce their uh their ropes and to de-radicalize um wow and so yeah amazing man and so I've been talking to him about how you can use arts and culture to to, to de-radicalize and, and have de-extremism so I'm having conversations every day um I'm making a giant cartography of my life um that's a collage with objects I've collected from around the world uh, to be able to have my own creative practice and um having a lot of and and honestly the last thing I would say is you know, to digest this period, I, I found myself giving a lot of lectures and talks and having dialogues and being on panels. And the reality is, is I know for myself, digesting this period and also the different places where we've worked and where I've lived to, to, to digest that, being able to talk to others is probably one of the most cathartic and meaningful hmm. things to do. I, so this, this guy, I've first off, I've had the same the same experience. It's it's blown my mind this really puts into perspective how much we're able to do now from, from basically isolation because of this technology. And one of my friends, Shishi, who is also a guest on the podcast, he said um, he was he was saying like how social media has been the object of such vilification for for years. Um, and you know, creating all this uh, mental illness and and all this. But now, like, think of how crazy we'd be going if we didn't have this technology to connect us. Um, it's kind of funny that it's that it was the villain, and now it's kind of the savior. Um, so. You know, I so not not to go in the social media direction for a second, but I I, I think social media is a tool. Whether yeah. it's good or bad is one's choice. You know, I think it's amazing what Black Lives Matters has done. I think mm -hmm. that's that's you know uh, specifically as a movement. Um, I I also look at the fact that there were over uh, they're estimating out fifty thousand accounts created by the Myanmar government that were that that was creating propaganda that was promoting the genocide of an entire culture of the Rohingya people through Facebook. Mm. Right. You know, it can it, it, it can be advocating for human rights. It can be destroying human rights. It, in, social media in itself is not a good or bad. It is a tool. Um, and I think this era is showing that in many ways, um, both both for social change, but also awareness raising, which I, I do think is important. Um, and, and, and figuring out how to use it in a healthy way is a big question. How, how do you well. think it's for both of you? How do you think that it's really that much different? now than pre-COVID, except for just people are using it a lot more or in, you know, or pe or it is using people a lot more. It depends, right? Because it can be a tool, like you said, Max, but it can also use you like a tool. So I, I don't, it's, and so is, is now yeah. any different than before, except for the fact that it's just a lot more of it because people are looking at screens even more than they were before and they're using social media even more than they were before because of time the conditions and situations and circumstances it what was his what was Shishi's main point as to why it's less of a villain now it's that people see it as less of a villain now people were seeing it as a villain before and now people are like thank fuck we have the ability to talk with people. Does, like, think of... Yeah. Did he think that 
people were right in seeing it that way. <laughs> he, he didn't. He didn't necessarily Talk present that, yeah. an opinion on that. He was just observing that that's um, what people are thinking. You know, and and the experience of a lot of people, probably for him too, because he's someone who tries to avoid using social media, and because you know, because he he, he kind of had this you know, one of his goals was to become a famous musician. And so then like the follower account became super important and he would just spend time on his Instagram and, it w- and was kind of fucking with him. So he had this personal negative relationship with it. But then once it became his means of connecting with anybody and not a means of disconnecting with the people in front of him, then it became like the superhero in his life. Hmm. I, I, I find... I find it fascinating, right? Where we will work with people who, you know, may only have one pair of clothing, they don't have running water, they don't have, you know, basic necessities, and yet they'll have a phone and they will have Facebook, <laughs> right? No, this is I know, I've, I'm laughing because I've seen this a ton of times too and it bewilders me. Right, and why is that? Because the access, the right to information is is a human right. It's becoming a human right. Right now, whether that's social media or just or just information as a whole, there's a big conversation about what does that mean? I, I uh, you're asking, what have I done? What do I do with my time? I spend a lot of time talking to my girlfriend because that's the only person I've spent time with. And she was saying, in order to be relevant, you have to know what's happening in the world. And, and, and whether that means doing research from a very academic perspective, where that means just seeing what people are posting, that's one perspective. Um, I'm, I'm seeing, for example, some of our, our artists where WhatsApp, let's use WhatsApp for, for, for a second. Our WhatsApp groups, which is how we're in daily communication with our teams, it's a lifeline. It's a way where they can feel that they're heard outside of the small bubble where they may not have basic rights. They may not have freedom to move outside of the camp. They may not be able to get a job or get education or own land or have access to a passport or even be able to apply for a passport. Yet, through this phone, they can have a WhatsApp communication with people on the other side of the world. Mm. And, and that, to me, is a positive I've seen. Of communication where I'm able right after this you know yesterday I got a phone call from from one of our artists who's in Syria and he and he video calls me and he has a musical drum that I'd given uh, him the last time I was there and we play the music together from Syria and me in New York okay and and, and I'm just thinking God how is that possible like that's wild to me Right. And Mm. we're actually doing a new experiment, which, you know, for anyone who would listen to this recording this upcoming uh, Saturday, it's uh, World Refugee Day uh, for those for for, for those who don't know. It's World Refugee Day. And we are doing for the first time ever in history. We're actually getting um, South Sudanese refugee artists, uh, uh, Syrian refugee artists and Rohingya refugee artists to all have a digital conversation with each other uh, video. Um, on World Refugee Day about what it means to be um, both a refugee, an artist, and also how to, what it means to connect in this era and in this time. And that could never happen if it weren't for technology, right? And, and, and I don't know if we would have done it if it weren't for the COVID crisis. Um, and, I, and I think the reality is, is we need, there needs to be more ways of connecting people and, and grabbing onto the good stuff and not letting the bad stuff overpower. Yeah. And I think that's that that's that's an equilibrium that is not easy to say, 
you know, for me personally, I find it very conflicting about what I put up on social media. Um, because number one, I know that there's many people who may not, you know, have access to very much. So, you know, I'm very conscious that I don't want to, 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 to create um, images that are, you know, showing that inequity. And yet at the same time, I find that, you know, if I see one of our artists who, you know, puts an image up on the internet of a drawing that they made, that makes me really happy. You know, that they're able to show what matters to them. So I don't think there's an easy answer yeah. to that. I, I, I do, you know, I do think, though, that that's a good question in this in this era, because, I mean, God, has technology not just become a, a pulse of the world? And, and you know, right now, I think they, a lot of social media is very politicized that that if you are, you know, not writing something political, then does that mean you're <laughs> against equity? Mm. Right. And, and and I think you have to be what do, you know, you have to be an ally. What do you what do you think of that? Do you think that if somebody's especially like I'm actually curious, like right now, like right now in these days, especially in the last, I'd say, like two weeks. Um, there's people that like want to. Somebody that wants to share their art, for example, somebody that wants to put up a song, somebody wants to put up a painting that they did. Somebody wants to put up a dance that they did. that They worked on. Could, it could be art. It could be something else, something that they worked on. And they're getting criticized harshly because it's not directly, necessarily directly, um, you know, political and, and activist related in, you know, in terms of what's happening right now. Um, and it's like, you know, if you're not, if, if everything that you're posting is not activisty at this time, then, you know, fuck off basically and you're doing a, an ins, uh, you know disservice to the world um what do you think about that i know that that's happening i've, I've seen that happen hmm. yeah i mean i mean i think i mean i mean my opinion is 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 is, is multifold. i think there's the one perspective which you know right now is a time where where social change is happening and whatever statements people are putting out into the world it's under a different lens it's not the same lens as it was a couple months ago. So whatever you put out there, you do need to be aware of that. I, I, I think we, we don't live in vacuum. We don't live in a vacuum. However, if you are in Uganda and, you know, you are in the bitty bitty refugee settlement and what you're posting, you know, that that it's what's in your sphere. It's what's in your bubble, right? What, what matters to you? I know a lot of our team, for example, there has had their food rations cut by 50%. They're thinking about the fact that they're hungry. That's that's what's going to come out, and, and and we've had, and and I know one of our one of our artists posted something about that. Now now if we're talking about like you know the contemporary very left leaning you know United States sphere, which is I think what you're referencing, um, I think it I think it's complicated. I think it's important to show solidarity and to be an ally. I also think it's important to try to make the world a better place, however you can, um, and to talk about equity is really important. I think at the same time, whatever your talents, tools, skills are, to not feel restricted about sharing that is also really important. So I think you have to toe the line. Um, I know myself, there's so many brands, individuals, artists who are being attacked if they're not making, you know, statements of solidarity. Um, and if you're very careful, if you're, you know, trying to maintain, um, you know, a positive stance, I also think, you know, it, it, it largely depends on your community. Um, and what and and what what what's expected for you to to say, 
you know, and I think what's being expected is not is not something that I think has ever existed before, like in history, because the difference is we had, you know, there was a civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s, but there wasn't social media. People weren't seeing this immediately. Mm. Racism was just as bad, you know, obviously some would argue worse, some would say the same as it is today. It's just like like Will Smith says, racism hasn't changed. It's just getting filmed. Yeah, you know, I and, totally and, agree and I with think, that. Yeah. you know, so so it's about Yeah, I, I want to um, bring in I, I saw the, I I saw this a while ago, but I this came up for on some feed of mine at some point today and it's relevant to all of this and I'm just going to read it really quick. It's a short, little short blurb with an interview with Morgan Freeman. Um, just just a little bit, just a few lines. And then I want to hear your response to it. Because um, this, be- this is before, well, before, before what's happening right now. But obviously what's happening right now has been happening for a long time. So I'll start. What do you find, how do you find Black History Month? Ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? Oh, come on. Well, what do you what do you do with yours? Which month would be which month would be White History Month? Well, I'm Jewish. Okay. Which month is Jewish History Month? There isn't one. Oh, why not? Do you want one? No. Right. I don't want I don't want a month either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. So the interviewer asks how are we going to get rid of racism? Stop talking about it. Which is an interesting point, especially right now, especially coming in, in that kind of way. Wait, this is what Morgan yeah. Freeman said. He said, stop talking about it. The more it. that you talk about to it, the honest. more that you give it value. This is, this is the point, right? The more that you give it value, the more that you talk about, you're basically polarizing people. The more that you do that, the more that you, and it's, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with it, but it's interesting given everything that's happening right now to have that perspective on it, like in the long run, is that a more sustainable type of answer? Yeah, I, it's interesting. I, I've, I have heard Morgan Freeman talk about a, a number of different political and social issues and I usually don't agree with him and I don't really agree with him here either. Um, because like just, because, because that doesn't have, like, so maybe if that were to happen, if everybody uh, stopped, if every single person stopped talking about racism and acknowledging racism, maybe it would go away. But that's not going to happen. Yeah, I think it's too and idealistic. It's, and, that, and that doesn't. I agree. I agree yeah, with it you. Doesn't have, I think. That doesn't have a practical roadmap to it. I I I have a a a, a mixed opinion about that. Um, I think in the ideal world, right, that that would be a world without racism. But there's never been a world without racism. There's never been a world without war. There's never been a world without inequity or famine or trauma. There's always been pain in the world. And unfortunately, I think there will always be pain in the world and there will always be inequity. The question is, how do we create the infrastructure for people to deal with the next wave of trauma. So so an example, I just heard an incredible uh, talk by um, it's the Center of 
of uh, American policing, I believe is what it's called. And 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 what and what the 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 executive director said, which was so interesting. He said, "This is not this is not the ending. This is not the ending. The most important thing you can do is prepare for the next trauma that will happen. And when you prepare for that, and when you design resilient responses, then there can be long-term change." This is this is a fight that has been going on since, you know, the I would argue the beginning of time. Some would argue since colonization. Some would argue since the civil rights movement, um, women's suffrage, trans rights. I mean, the the, the 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 fight for equity is not a new conversation. It's a conversation that's always been there. I think talking about it, maybe what he's saying, is we need to stop talking about it we need to start doing something about it right and 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 that's that's an interpretation hmm. of what he was talking about is because i think there's there is a lot of talking about it and i found in my yeah. own you know worlds there's many people who you know we were talking about social media that they feel that 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 posting on social media is a way of acting and and i think it can be i think for for many folks it can be i have felt myself in this recent era finding well, what can i bring to the table that's unique to me and i've realized that in many ways for example i i co-run an international organization and i have access to partners and resources where i can hopefully redistribute some of the inequity and wealth across the world and i think that is just as politically active as having a sign and walking in a march i just think it's a different version of social activism and maybe that's what Morgan Freeman is, say, is talking about, that we need to stop talking about, you know, a, 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 a blank history month, right? Whether it be mm. Jewish, black, Chinese. It's not about having a month where you talk about it. It's about having 365 days a year where we're working towards equity and not talking about it. You know, and, and, and maybe that's an interpretation on it. Yeah, that, that makes me think of this Onion article that I read a couple days ago that says... Um, like under under pressure from the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have agreed to uh, to give black people a national holiday or something like one day uh, like one day off of work a year or maybe put up a statue in uh, in a very prominent place or like several like smaller statues in different cities around the country um, because that's often the kind of action that is taken in response to these kind of issues rather than a structural systemic change. It's kind of more like right. token calling Gestural. out, being like, yeah, um, virtue signaling, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with that. I get, I get what you're saying and I, I respect that. I'm not gonna do anything really about it, but we'll, right. we'll, we'll talk about it. Well, Australia is, I think, probably one of the biggest examples of that. Uh, I worked in the central desert uh, with the Aboriginal communities. Um, uh, a series of times and you know they I, I found it so ironic looking at Australia compared to New Zealand um, when I lived in New Zealand New Zealand has actually to their core been able to 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 develop a much more equal system where um, still to this day it's because of the Treaty of Waitangi and the history of New Zealand that that you have uh, Modi communities that are st you know still own about 40% of the land in New Zealand which is remarkable and, you know th that that everybody learns a pledge you know the pledge of allegiance to the national anthem in Modi mm. before English versus in the, you know in the Aboriginal communities they went through their own genocide. And the response, as you said, was that Australia created a, get this, sorry day. 
they literally call it sorry day and, and i've talked to many australian colleagues of mine and and it's and it's not something that is is taken seriously and in many parts of the country they don't even allow the aboriginal flag to be flown next to the australian flag um, and, and mind you, in this country, it's the same. You don't see the uh, the, the Native American uh, flags being flown next to the American flag. And 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 the reason I, I say that is, the changes that need to be happening with police violence, the changes that need to be happening on a on a systemic level, you know, talking about it is one thing, but like voting really matters. Like really matters. Um, being able to develop ways of taking action. Um, really matter. And I do think there's a lot of what would be called, you know, quote unquote, lip service that is paid to a lot of these issues, yet there hasn't been change. So, 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 so the question becomes, what is change? And, and my personal opinion is whatever one's talent, passion, dedication, whatever you do, to do it full-fledged. So for example, I, I, I believe in animal rights. I think animal rights is important, but that is not my core issue of what I fight for, what I work towards every day, right? What I work for is, oops, sorry. What, 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 what I work for is being able to create um, a forum for people who have been through serious trauma to tell their stories and to reclaim their identities um, in, in a new way, uh, especially with the global migration refugee crisis. And that doesn't mean I don't care about the other issues. It just means that I've chosen one path of action. And I think anybody can choose a path of action. I think sometimes it means, okay, it's the opportunity costs. I may not be working with PETA, right? Or working with um, Greenpeace, but that doesn't mean I don't believe in environmentalism. Right. I, I, I think that's many times this misnomer that's one or the other. I, I think that they can all benefit. We have all of our roles to play. You know, s speaking of having your own. Your own your own path, your own your own way to make change. I really wanted to come back to that guy who converted 300 people from the KKK. What was what was his name? Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis. So what how did how did that go down were these 300 kkk members who are like on the edge and they're like you know i don't know if this is right anymore or were they meeting uh without any intention of uh changing or listening and then they became uh they came to the to the other side and de-radicalized um well it's amazing uh article that he did with npr which was really phenomenal that i'd recommend checking out and the and the answer is it took many decades this is not something that happened one day it was something where he per, per happenstance met um the met a kkk member when he was in uh maryland i believe and um and ended up sitting down and talking with him and he said the key to his his experience was listening was listening to to the indoctrination, to the ideas that these people had been taught, and realizing that that if he can can prove through his existence as an African American man um, in America, and showing through them saying, well, you say all black people are this way, but I'm not like that. I'm I. How can you say that? How can that be true? 
And then it forces people to reconsider their values. It forces people to reconsider what they have maybe dedicated themselves to. Um, I think that's actually true across of uh, all fundamentalism and extremism, which is you know coming in with these preconceived notions of what is right and what is wrong, mm. when the reality is 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 many of those things um, may not be true. And so um, it, he had a lot of interesting things to say about it. And, and I just, it was an amazing conversation, a series of conversations I've had with him. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's really interesting to me because I think the most effective strategy for de-radicalizing people is the one that people really don't want to do and that people actually often characterizes being specifically evil which is being able to go and sit and listen to the to these people as as like a, as a legitimate human um because it's you know someone i was someone someone told me yesterday just writing people off as crazy or just writing people off as evil is letting them off too easy um because then it's saying that this is totally this is um this is kind of up to other forces uh rather than this being a human being who has made a choice and has had a certain experience that has led them to that choice and being able to sit there and actually engage treat that person as legitimate and listen to their awful abhorrent um like way way of seeing things and then being able to speak to them without demonizing them is the way to actually uh, to diffuse the emotions out of the conversation and be able to let them see the other side of the conversation. And when we're talking about um, you know social media and like posting to that, I I don't engage politically on social media um, for two reasons. One, because I can't really handle that um, that tension. And B, because it's my my post that I make on, I think social media has a very legitimate uh, function in social movements, but my post on my, uh, my wall is not likely to resonate with anyone who doesn't already agree with me. But what I can do is speak with my parents who are, you know, much older from a different generation and they, um, they, don't, they don't fully understand this movement, they don't understand uh, police brutality and then being able to sit there and listen to my dad who's going through a lot of emotions about this movement because you know his his store uh, one of the windows was broken in riots and people like went in and, and looted some stuff so that leaves a bad taste in his mouth about it and then being able to sit there like listen to him engage him in that conversation and then without demonizing him for not understanding the movement, being able to describe what's happening, like what are what's what are statistics, what are facts, what is actually happening to black people and to people of all races, what is what is the economic um, disparity that is growing wider and wider in the US and explaining like being able to show him this other side so that he can have empathy with the people who are who are acting in this way and understand where they're coming from and then i see my parents start to understand like slowly start to get it more and more and like change their viewpoints like that's like for me that has 
that just if I'm just able to help them understand it better, and then when they go and talk to their friends who are also more conservative, then they have a different kind of conversation. For me, that has a much bigger impact than like mm. uh, a post that I can make on on Facebook. Right. Well, I, I think you're you're discussing something which I think is really important, which is the human connection, right? Like having sitting down and having a conversation. And I I I do think that's really important. I found myself in the beginning of this administration doing the same thing. Um, I, I I had quite a few conversations, and it and it's it's a balance, right? I think it's easy to get disheartened. Um, I found that a lot in my in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, where I talked to very religious people of both sides and heard their stories, and it was very hard. You know, it's very hard to hear hate. Um, and you know, no one's you know they say right, no one's born hating, right? That's uh, Nelson Mandela, right? And and you know we learn to hate, and if you can learn to hate, you can learn to unhate. And and you know I I I really you know I I I hope you know hope hope is a weird term, right? That we hope for something. Well, I think you have to act in order to hope, right? Like hope comes from action. Um, at least for me, it does. When I when I see so many depressing things happening all over the world, you know, ranging from um, you know, COVID spreading so quickly and so many people dying so fast, um, to you know the systemic racism that's been in this country since the enslavement of millions of people, um, I, I I think it's very easy to go to a very dark place, a very dark place, and and to not. I, I say that metaphorically. What what I, I I love this idea is if you ever get a chance. When I was working in the Middle East in this place Yad Vashem, which is the the, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Israel, um, it's in Jerusalem, and and it was interesting because I was working in the Palestinian refugee camps at the time, and then I, I actually went and visited Yad Vashem. It was my second or third time there. There's a room that's all dark except for one candle, and yet the candle has a thousand mirrors in the room, okay? And you walk in and it feels like a room that looks like the universe with thousands and thousands of lights, but it's just one candle that's that, that's set up in the middle. And I think that is the analogy that we need right now. And that's a single conversation, mm -hmm. that's a single relationship, that's a single you know ability to mm -hmm. uh, change uh, one's own thinking or the thinking of others. Um, I think that one light in the darkness is is an analogy that means something now that's different than it meant a couple months ago. It's something now that meant something different than it meant yesterday. I think day by day, the world is changing at an unprecedented rate. And things that are positive and that are, and that are fighting for the good stuff um, has a significance in, in the weighting of what it means in a different way than it's ever been before. And I think we're all reckoning with that of figuring out, you know, that one song that Noah makes or that one painting that's created um, or that one email that you send, right, might be that crack in the system or might be that light in the darkness. Mm. You know, I, 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 I do think it's about listening. I think it's also about even if, if, if you light that candle and a hundred times it gets swept out by the wind, on that hundred and first time, it makes it all worth it. 
right? And I had a great a great conversation with um, with actually our country manager in in the Rohingya camps, and he said the most amazing thing. We were talking, and he's and we were talking, and and he said, you know, if if there's a sea of pain, and you're fighting for one droplet of healing, is it worth it? And the answer is that one droplet of healing creates ripples. And we don't know where those ripples will lead. But that one droplet of healing is worth fighting for now more than ever. So so I do think it really matters. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, what do you think, guys? Do we do we wrap it up there? That seems like a pretty good place to, to end. Individual connections, yeah. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, I think that's I think yeah. that's great. Um so Yeah. I mean, we have, we have to leave it on a positive note. That is yeah, a positive maybe. note, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know if, cool. Max, you want to... I know, Dan, you did, did this for the last one, but if, Max, you want to shout out your where people can find you, um, however you want to say that, go for it. Sure. Um, for anybody who listens to this, please see more about our work. Uh, it's called Art Artolution like an evolution or a solution or revolution, resolution, artolution. Uh, and you can see it at artolution.org. Uh, you can follow us on any of the social media handles. Um, and please visit our work, reach out for anybody who's uh, interested in the work we're doing about getting involved or uh, creating collaborations. Um, I think that being able to uh, meet with passionate individuals like you guys who are passionate and driven and who care, um, it's, it's inspiring. And I think we, we need to share that inspiration. And uh, I, I really look forward uh, to seeing, to, to talking more and, um, and to continuing this dialogue. Awesome. Thanks so much, Max. That was really, really awesome conversation. Super inspiring guy. <laughs> yes, he is. Thanks, man. I love you, Maxie. <laughs> well, um... well, well, I'm glad we got into some really interesting topics that I don't always talk about, right? Things that are not easy to talk about, but maybe that's why they're so important to discuss. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was sweet, man. Um, yeah, man, that, that, went, that went all over the place. You know, one one thing that you you've done work in Colombia, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we run programs in Colombia. Yeah, was, you know, so, something that that came across my mind, like Noah and Jacob and I um, started organizing some uh, concerts in in Medellin. Cause yeah. a like a there's not a whole lot of live music down there, and just like personally, I just wanted I just wanted to hear more music. And there was definitely no, not like a house concert scene, like I don't know, so far sounds and stuff like that, that that didn't exist down there, and so we we started like putting those together and we put on a couple concerts and it was, it was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done because it was mostly people that we heard just playing on the street, because but they're fantastic musicians, so there's some really awesome musicians but they don't really have an outlet or any place that's going to pay them um so they just play for change uh at a traffic light and being able to give those people an actual audience to hear them Mm -hmm. and like give them some like money for their for their work was awesome so i don't know maybe you're you're you'd be interested in doing some kind of collaboration uh that way 
Totally. I, 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 I think that'd be awesome. Right now we're specifically Colombia, which I think is a very unique place to work because of its history. Um, we're working with a lot of the internally displaced people and the, um, who are the IDPs from the conflict with the FARC and also the uh, Venezuelan uh, refugee mm. uh, uh, crisis that's happening currently. And one of the things we found is, is you know, our, our, our artists that are there are so ranging from photography, music, dance, you know, amazing samba, um, you know, you know, samba dance and then and then moving, you know, and then and then of course mural muralists and and really really amazing people. Um, but yeah, it would be very very cool to figure out ways of being able to do that, but it's the exact same logic, which is there's talent everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's just about being able to make it um, magnified, like putting a magnifying glass over this person, this experience, this history that's being made and saying, okay, well, you are the maker of history. You are the maker of, of uh, a change in the world that, that, that you're working towards. I, I don't know, it's, it is arguably one of the more, most or more rewarding things that you can feel is catalyzing other artists yeah. to have a platform, um, especially if you already have a platform, which inherently in many ways, um, have you know in the areas we were born and live in um, and acknowledging that we have a platform and I think that's something where there are many people who don't have even the even those most basic things and I think sometimes it's, it's not about like we're coming to rescue or something it's it's just about sharing an opportunity and making making uh, you know others are the ones who who deserve the spotlight I, I don't know it's something that's been very meaningful within my life I would say that's some that's something I've uh, that was kind of one of my one of my dreams is to be able to like I can go down and, and create concerts like without much of a problem but I'd it, it would be a dream to be able to go down there and create like a, a system yeah. that will be self-sustaining and make those uh those concerts for themselves and then be able to leave and it still goes and grows on without me being there right i mean it's a little bit like a plant right uh, is that you plant a seed but a seed doesn't just grow on mm -hmm. its own it needs cultivation it needs time it needs effort dedication you know and that's one thing i found is you know we would go and we'd meet these me and my partner we would meet these amazing people in these places that we'd be working and then we'd leave and and the number one question they would always ask is when are you coming back which is not the right mm -hmm. question in my opinion the right question is how can we do this for ourselves right and the answer is is it, it's not easy you have to build an infrastructure we have to build a board of directors our advisory council we have our teams around the world we have our country managers you know it's taken you know god i guess started this international work about 12 years ago when i was 18 is when i started doing this work um at least you know working painting murals internationally and 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 what i realized is it's like okay if we can set up this system and we can water it over years then then it takes off in a direction you could never imagine and it's like we've created forests around the world but every forest is different from every other one and i and i can say for sure every country requires very different um contextualization it's not it's not, it's not like you do the same thing in every place you know it, it, it you, you have to adjust it to the culture to the people to the context i think that's really important as well but yeah it that, that's exactly what we've been trying to do and what we've been working towards. so what you know what would your your advice to me be about um creating or facilitating the creation of an organization that can 
sustain itself without me being there and being the, the center of everything. I, I would, I actually have a very strangely clear and simple answer for that. Um, you have to find a local champion of mm. the work. So, so, so you have to, and, 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 I, and I will use that terminology from a, a, a friend of mine who actually told it to me, who started the largest kids not-for-profit in Nepal, and, and, and he made a really interesting comment. He said, you know, if you think you're going to do everything, then you will fail. You can guarantee you will fail. You need to find people, and you need to set that seed, light that spark inside of them, where they are a local champion of the work, and they will be able to make it flourish within their own context. And I think if, the, you know, if you find a Colombian person, I know for us, we have our country manager, uh, Camilo, who, you know, really without him, none of this would really have happened in the same way in Colombia, right? Shuja Udin in our, in the Rohingya context or, um, you know, Sadiq in, in the Syrian context. We have, we have these individual people and, and, and if they are champions of the work, that really is, is crucial mm. within a local context. Within a larger context, I think it's also being able to, um, you know, use the networks that you already have to be able to get people to care. I think that's probably the most important thing. Get people to care about what mm -hmm. you're doing. Um, with your, you know, you probably already know people who care about what you do and what you care about. It's about tapping into those folks and creating a very clear path to what you're trying to achieve. Um, that's funny. That's, that's really um, the exact same word that we used, like when I was starting off in um music publicity and doing like the more uh, you know some of the best pr that you can do at all but i'll just speak from like in, within the music industry has been and will always be the grassroots on the ground people that are m moving and shaking things in their local communities to make sure that 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 the artist or the band or whatever is the most successful that they can be in that given community. And so we use that same exact term, champion on the ground, um, in these different local communities that really cared about the music, the messages, and the artists the artist themselves. Um, they've been following this band or musician for years, and they really care, and they want to do everything in their power. Even if they have a full-time job, they want to do everything in their power to make sure that that artist is as successful or that musician is as successful as possible when they come to town um, and they have a concert. And those people are the ones that are going to sell tickets. And just and yeah. the, and the most that you can do, the best that you can do is empower those people. Um, and so it's, it's, it's the same exact thing. It's just it's just another example of it really does carry across yeah, totally. worlds and industries. Um, and it's, it's the exact same thing we did with music PR. Yeah. I think the, the, the biggest bottleneck that I think about with that is where, where does the funding come from? Because for me, because for yep. me to fund, yep. for me to personally fund uh, four Colombian bands, uh, buy the snacks, buy any <laughs> drinks that people are going to buy up front. And then, you know, people will buy them at the concert and then that makes the money back. And then like and then money on top of it with with which we can yeah. pay, the, uh, pay the bands. Yeah. But I can do that because that's because for me in U.S. dollars, that's it's not very much money. Like I can I can handle that. And I'm I'm trying to figure out how do I how do I figure out the funding part of that so that a person who might not have the funds that I personally have 
would be able to still facilitate those concerts. And 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 I would argue the the, the answer to it is is again looking to systems. I, I I it's very weird because I felt the same way. I'm like, you know, can, can you make a living doing this? Can, can can this really be something that can sustain itself? And the answer is you need to find one institution to start off with that that believes in what you're trying to do. Um, and then once you start with the one, that can turn into two, which can turn into three. I, I, I know from, from, from our perspective, it, took, it, it takes a portfolio of work as well. You can't start, it's very hard to start from scratch. I think if you're starting from scratch, um, you have to have examples that you're, you, you know, proof of theory. You know, you need to have an evidence-based model. If I'm going to put on a concert, I know it's going to be successful because I've done 20 mm. concerts. And, and look, look at all these amazing musicians and this amazing work that I've done. For me, I, I felt lucky in many ways in that I actually knew about this. Um, what I was working towards, community-based public art education, I was working towards this while I was my undergraduate um, at RISD. And one of the things that I did is I came out of my college already having a very extensive portfolio of international work. Um, and so I was able to leverage that to say, okay, can I figure out a way, you know, to get to the Middle East? Can I, okay, I, I got there through by the skin of my teeth, by being able to make one connection, led to another connection, led to another thing. And mind you, it took a lot of years before I was even breaking even, mm. you know, it's, it, 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 and it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't easy, but then slowly one thing after another after another it ended up building into now we have this international ngo um and have a staff of six full-time people and it's really you know grown but it, it took patience i think a patience is is part of it to quote my my mentor um who's an amazing man named mike fink he he, he had a great quote he said always remember when you're at the beginning you're in the beginning only when you're in the middle and you're really fighting in the middle then you're in the middle and only when you're at the end then you're at the end and never get the three steps mm. mixed up and i think and, and i i know myself i felt a lot of frustration in the early days because i wanted to be in the middle or at the end and i was still at the beginning you know and the thing is is to know that it, it goes incrementally you know I, I i i did a bicycle trip from san francisco to rhode island um biking biking cross country and and you know when you're in, when you when i when we had our uh uh, our tail of our bicycle in the ocean and being it's not like you're thinking oh i'm gonna get, I'm, you know, I'm going to providence i'm going to rhode island which is where we're biking to no i'm gonna go 10 10 miles down the road to the next town that's all i'm trying to get to right okay i get to that town oh i'm getting to the next mountain range the sierra nevadas okay that's 20 miles down okay that's what i'm getting to okay i got to the sierra nevadas now i'm now i need to cross nevada okay that's the you know it goes in steps and I think, and I think, if you can create those steps, knowing that it's not going to be a clean path, it's going to be a winding pathway, but knowing that it goes incrementally, that's a that's a good mentality at least to go at it with. Um, I, I also think it's important to be very clear with your idea. If you have a very clear idea and you can put a title to it, people are more engaged with what you're going to do, you know. And and I think that's important, you know. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, look at uh, couch surfers, you know. Very simple, a very simple idea, couch surfers. And it exploded, mm -hmm. right? Because it was an idea that was easy to explain. I, I think for our work, we're, we're still deciphering down how to explain it really clearly. 
Um, but we do have a concept that a lot of people can get on board with, which I think is important. Um, same with a musician, like Noah was talking about. You know, you, you take a musician that Noah represents, like Nano Stern, and if you listen to his music and you understand what he's saying, you can get on board because you know he's talking about really good, important stuff. You know, and you can, and you can, and there's ways of supporting it. I think, you know, that's, when you're talking about starting an organization, I think that's important. And no, it's going to take mm. years. You don't just do it overnight. Starting an organization takes time. Going back also really quick time. to what Max was talking about with with finding systems, and I would imagine also getting basically getting getting help from people, right? Getting funding in some in one way or another. And so you were talking about how to get funding. I'm speaking going to speak a little bit more idealistically, because and and maybe in a bit bigger picture. Maybe I'm probably skipping a few steps right now, but are what it's called consecretos, by the way, Max. The the it's like, like, cons, like concierto, but like secreto, you know. Anyway, that was that was your idea, right, Dan? Yeah, Dan's brain baby. Anyway, um, is could we get a sponsor for consecretos that's into this idea that wants to support this type of a thing that wants to support local musicians and will help front the money ahead of time? Maybe we'll even help support help front some resources. Will there be a, some kind of a sponsor that has enough? money for something like that um and it would be interesting to see if companies like uh so far sounds and what's another one um there's a there's a few of them if they do things like that where they or if i mean they're obviously different than us because they've got a whole they have their own money but starting off if they did things mm -hmm. like that as well if they have their own sponsors for their concerts i don't know if they do and we wouldn't necessarily base our model off of theirs anyway but it's definitely um something to consider that's what a lot of concerts and and that's, not, that's what a lot of festivals do i mean most as festivals that i've helped organize mm -hmm. where's a lot of the money coming from it's actually not from the concert goers it's from toyota it's from you know <laughs> uh these companies that are giving a lot and you know what might hate these companies might love them whatever they're giving a lot of money and if you're really supporting you really want this festival to happen then you got it you know you got to go for it and um i don't know i think well, well, that's well, that's another conversation about the equalizing of the systems, right? I, I know I, I, I'm going to go a little more granular and then and then macro on it to to, to answer that, um, which is that I I it's hard it's hard to be fully judgmental of certain companies if they have money and you need that money. And would you rather be the one getting money for a cause that you believe in, or would you rather them give the money to something else? <laughs> Right. Well, we can't well, hear well, you, Max. I, you're right. I was going to say that that the public I think sector. Did you just unmute by accident? Oh, sorry. I will unmute. Yeah. You're good. Uh, you're right. Good. Yeah. Uh, you can hear me now. Um, no, I think I think the, 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 just to be totally honest, so much of the public sector funding has disappeared in the last four years. Um, the capacity to fund the arts in America is way down compared to what it, it was previously. I know almost all of our public sector funding disappeared um, during the current administration. So you need to find alternatives. You can't just be like, well, I'm going to stick to my values and I will have no corporation support whatsoever. Okay, then you'll go out of business. Or you, you, I, mean, I mean, I'm not saying that you only have corporations, but what I'm saying is you need to have diversified funding structures and you need to have a diversified approach. So for us, we, we have and we do work with companies. We work with philanthropies. We work with you know individual donors. We work with um, a whole range of different kinds of partners. And you need all of them. 
you know, it's not one or the other. You need all of it, especially right now, you know, staying afloat in this economy and in this um, turbulence and volatility. It's not easy, especially as a non-for-profit. It's not an easy era. And you have to do as much as you can to get as many different people engaged. I, I would recommend there's an amazing book called The Gra um, the the Gr Gratitude Network, I believe is what it's called. Um, and, and what it talks about is the future of philanthropy. And it basically says that when you are pitching, they use the example of a non-for-profit, but it's the same if you're pitching for a business in some ways. There's differences and similarities. But, um, and this is also someone who doesn't run a business. I run a non-for-profit organization. So, you know, it's not the same thing. But what I was going to say is you need to think about what are they getting out of it, right? Rather than thinking, what can I get from them? What can I ask so that I can get something from them? Versus thinking, you know, talking to companies and saying, hey, a company or a foundation or whoever might be able to fund your work and saying, you know, we have this, you know, this this amazing, groundbreaking, historically important idea, concept, movement. Do you want to get on board and be a part of this, rather than saying, "Oh, we, you know, we we have this idea. We have no money. Could you give us some money?" Right? That's an antiquated concept, I believe. In this era, people want to have something meaningful they can be a part of, and funders really want to have something meaningful to be a part of. When somebody gives a, you know, gives an amount of money, whether it's with an ROI, with an intention of a return on investment, or if it's actually donating, you know, whether it's for tax reasons or not, people want to feel like they did something that mattered. They want to feel like they're part of something meaningful. They want that, that they're part of something that gives their life that makes their life better and the lives of others better. Um, I think music is like that. The arts are like that. Education is like that. Um, I, I think across the across the world, you know, even even I think really good businesses are like that. And and so I think when you're thinking about it, also make what, what one of my what, one of our advisory council members named uh, Constance Klein. She has a great idea. She said, you know, you can't shoot for the I said you can't shoot for the stars unless you shoot to get there, right? You can't, you can't get to the moon unless you shoot to get there, right? Um, you know, you can never get to a place unless you shoot to get there. And her response was, well, have you envisioned it? Because you need to envision it. And I said, well, what do you mean envision it? She said, have you made a thought map of every major company, every celebrity, every donor, every potential person that could support your work, make a giant thought map and then, and then try. And if you try, you know, 100, maybe five will respond. Maybe two will respond. Right? And actually, ironically, I was sitting in her apartment, we literally made a thought map, and, uh, and a year later, uh, actually, a number of those people became supporters of ours. You know, so I think, I think if you envision it and you, create, and you create a cartography of that, then it's much easier to, 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 to conceive of how you can get there. Otherwise, it seems like it's too big of an idea and it's impossible, you know? And I, th I think that's, that's important, like stepping stones. Uh, of imagining how to get from point A to point B, but if you know that you need to get from, let's say, point A to point B, know that there could be 50 different ways you get there, and 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 being like, okay, it could be one of those 50 ways, but at least I have 50 ways, and 49 of them may fail, but if that one works, mm. then it works. You know, those are the odds you have to look at because it's it's not something that's easy. I mean, some absurdly. I mean, y you may know more about this than me. I, I believe it's like 75 to 80 percent of non for profits and startups, you know, fail within the first year. You know, like the heavy majority don't don't succeed. And, and those who do succeed have grit. 
which means they're working, you know, you know, the, the what is it, the 10,000 hour mark, if you've heard about that in Outliers mm-hmm. by Malcolm Gladwell, right? It, it's people who are working ridiculously hard to get to that point, um, as well as were born into a certain circumstance that allowed that to happen. So I guess it's, it's a nature and nurture kind of a combo when you start yeah. talking about it. I hope that I, I hope that's yeah I, I think it is at least remotely helpful <laughs> maybe yeah, maybe good, even more good, than that good, good. <laughs> oh. well well I, I don't know I, I think that I think it's it's very when you're creating your own initiative right when you're not working for somebody else like when you are the one who's making it there's a lot of uncertainty you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow you don't know what's gonna happen in a month from now, or in six months from now, or a year from now. It, it's not the same as working for a stable business, you know. And 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 I think that, you know, there's there's an ex, there's actually a really exciting piece to that 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 can really be ex, engaging, and there's also a, a risk to it. Um, and I think the risk, um, in the long run, is also related to fulfillment. Yeah. You know, I I don't know. That's at least been been. been been our work and and i acknowledge there's a certain level of privilege to even being able to take that risk you know i i get that i totally get that and i acknowledge that and 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 i think rather than feeling guilt i think it's feeling a responsibility to doing something meaningful in the world i I mean that's my opinion i think there's a lot of folks who come from um you know a background of having an education etc and feel like god i have so much and there's so many who have so little god i feel so bad about it well I don't think that's productive for anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's much more productive to say, okay, I, I, I have I have a lot of background infrastructure to be able to make a difference. Okay, what can I do to contribute? What can, what, what can I do? What's my responsibility? And I don't know. I think it's almost like a privilege responsibility, right? Like the privilege makes responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I do think, I don't know. Every, right now, I talked to a reporter from the New York Times recently, and she had a really interesting comment that she made. She was her name is Patty Lee Brown. She said, "You know, if you can if you can survive this, this is what she was saying to me. Okay, like literally, she said if our delusion can survive and last through this crisis and the potential depression that's going to come afterwards, or 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 through this, right? If you could survive through this, you may have more opportunities than you ever thought possible." And I thought that was really interesting. She was like, because those not-for-profits and organizations that survive, people will realize you you, you, you must be mm. resilient. Like, you must be adaptable and strategically able to deal with really difficult shit, you know? And I found that really interesting. You know, the, the, the strongest metals are forged in the hottest fires, right? Like, like the this intense era that we're in, if you can start something in this era or you can keep whatever you're doing maintained in this era... There's a logic that, okay, then you will be able to excel after all this happens. I mean, it's it's a hopeful perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. When she said that, I was like, whew, I hope I, you're right, Patty. I mean, I, I, hope I, think right. That, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's likely that if the if and when the world not goes back to normal, but when we when we have a semblance of of uh, of, of normalcy, when we're when we're not in this flux kind of uh, chaos and economic uncertainty if you mm. if you do get through that then it does say a lot and you you probably have a different perspective because um you're you're not a business but for businesses if they survive this they probably have less competition after this because 
only like only the strongest, most resilient ones will survive, and uh, for better or for worse, that's the case. And the ones who who do make it out the other side will have fewer. Um, there'll be fewer places for th for that funding that to is. go, for those opportunities to go. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I don't know. I. The, the, that makes me very hopeful like hearing that makes me very inspired and feeling like it's 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 something that's really good um i i i wonder what it will do to the economic world to the business world i wonder what it'll do to the nonprofit mm. sector um i wonder what it'll do to the private sector and the public sector i mean i'm i'm really wondering what this era will turn to and and mind you like think about aids and hiv right in the 80s it's not like it ever went away you know, it it, it, it it changed the fabric of society, you know, and in many parts of the world, it's still a, a very substantial issue. Malaria, you know, with the discovery of malaria, you know, these are diseases that change the world. And it's not something that where life just went back to normal. I think for this, it's going to change. Now, now, I'm not saying that, 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 that I'm not equating COVID to AIDS. I think this is something very different. But I do think that um, the world... The world is changing and, you know, the only constant is change, right? To quote Matt Embry, although that's actually from many quotes from many different cultures around the world. Um, uh, but 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 uh, RX Bandits happens to be one of my, me and my brother's favorite bands. And that's a great quote of theirs. Um, but but I was just going to say is it's like like everything's changing. We're on the precipice of so many things. And, and I'm finding myself, you know, I'm used to traveling all the time i was supposed to since the beginning of this crisis i was supposed to be in four different countries already and we were, i was supposed to be actually tomorrow i was supposed to be in tokyo um working at the olympics we were doing a big project for the tokyo olympics with the refugee team and of course everything's been postponed so it's like you know being adaptable and being flexible i mean now is is if you can adapt to this, there's the logic that you can adapt to most things as an mm. institution, um, or at least there's the, that's that's a hope, you know, that that this can open up opportunities that wouldn't have been yeah. there otherwise. As they say, inshallah. By the way, all right, guys. Well, now I gotta go. That was some that was some awesome bonus content. Back <laughs> down to the end. <laughs> <laughs> no, really engaging conversation. Yeah. I really enjoyed. It. All right.